Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello, this is the Business That Matters Spotlight, where we give the spotlight to ethical entrepreneurs achieving success while making a positive difference in the world. We've had a number of uh, pretty seasoned entrepreneurs on the show lately who've developed their businesses and are now integrating a values-based approach into their businesses. Today, I'm really excited for this guest as she's still young in her business, but has been absolutely committed to having her business embody values, social justice, positive social impacts right from the get-go. And not surprisingly to me, she's experiencing phenomenal growth with that. And full disclosure, uh, we work together. Uh, Jillian is a client of mine. She is Jillian Walsh. is the founder of Change Creates Change. She and I met through a wonderful incubator here in Toronto, Canada, where I'm a mentor called Fifth Wave. And it's for women-owned businesses that strive to embody feminist values and strong business financial and investment skills into their business. So I'm going to let Jillian describe the business more in a minute, but Jillian, welcome to the spotlight. Thank you, Warren, for having me. Excited to be here. Now you have a really interesting background. You have a couple of areas of specialty. Tell us a little bit about that and how you came to combine those. Of course. So I went to school first to become a dietitian and pretty quickly I ended up in the world of eating disorder care. After about five or six years, I noticed that there was some gap in what I could provide. And so I went into to become a, th- a therapist. So I went to do a master's of counseling and now I am dual credentialed. So I'm both a registered dietitian as well as a registered psychotherapist and I'm qualifying here in Canada. Wow. That's a, that's a fair amount of expertise in one young career. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of training. Absolutely. It's been really nice because I was able to do my master's while I worked. So I was able to build the business and really continue working with my clients while doing the additional training. So tell a little bit about the business. So what does Change Creates Change actually do and who does it do it for? Yeah, for sure. So we are a private practice um, in healthcare. We provide eating disorder care to children and youth uh, right up to about age 25. And we work with the individual who's affected by an eating disorder as well as their families. And that's families right across Canada. So we provide wraparound care to make sure that those folks can recover from their eating disorder as quickly as possible. So you just describe that. What do you mean by wraparound care? What is that? Absolutely. That sounds like a term of art. Yeah. So wraparound care is really a reference to being able to provide all services required in-house. So we have therapists on our team. We have dietitians on our team. And we also work very closely with medical professionals who can make sure that the individuals are um, medically stable while we do the work that is required of eating disorder recovery. And in the world of, of eating disorders, just because of the emotions, like why is that so important having that wraparound? Like what does it do that, you know, perhaps not having that same kind of model would leave lacking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the big piece is that we know that eating disorders are a mental health issue. 
But the piece that is often missed is that they deteriorate into a physical health concern because the mental health aspect really impacts the physical health through malnutrition. So the piece that we really zoom in on is repairing the physical health and repairing the malnutrition so that the individual is nourished and well enough to strongly and fully engage in the mental health work. So it's, uh, it's kind of like a two-pronged approach. Our dietitians work on repairing the physical health and re-nourishing the body. And then the psychotherapists work on the mental health and improving their positive coping skills, doing some exposure therapy work, um, improving body image. But it's really helpful that we are targeting both the physical health and the mental health uh, at the same time, or at least in tandem. And then you've also, in, in other contexts, discussed also family health as part of that, like that wraparound care. It's not just for the, for the youth. It's also to support the families who are in turn trying to support the kids, right? You, you got it. And Warren, as you know, we're both parents, right? So as parents, if our child's going through any sort of struggle or adversity, we're very heavily impacted as parents. And so our model here at Change Creates Change is that we're also supporting the parents and the loved ones to help their child get better. We recognize that parent burnout, compassion fatigue, you know, frustrations, chaos within the home, just overwhelm is going to have a very significant impact on the mental health of the parents and the loved ones, even the siblings. So we make sure that we take a family-centered approach. We're not simply treating the individual with the eating disorder in a silo. We look at the family as a unit, as a whole, um, with the ultimate goal of reducing chaos within the household and, and finding a more balanced home home environment. That must be on the other end of it, that must be really satisfying to hear from people who've gone from that level of chaos to, I imagine on the other end of this must be something like peace or calm or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it, it takes a lot to get there. It's, it's a big undertaking, of course, but it's so fulfilling and it's very, very rewarding, I think, for the, for the family, for the parents, for the individual who's living with the eating disorder, but also for us as the clinicians, it is very rewarding work. And I, I think it's, it plays a huge role in preventing burnout for myself as well as my team. And I love, I love your purpose statement and not just, you know, you and I kind of worked on it together, but it's, it speaks to the bigger need in society. And maybe we can talk about that, that a little bit because you're not the way you define it, it's you're not there just to treat an ailment. It's, if I can read it, it says, you know, to create a world where people feel safe and to accept their authentic selves and enjoy their lives fully without conforming to societal standards. So I take it you see there's a, there's a bigger problem with self-acceptance and conformity pressures in society for kids, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I feel strongly about that, that there is environmental triggers. There are societal influences that are manifesting or influencing the manifestation of these eating disorders in youth. And I think a lot of the research coming out these days is supporting that because we've, we've really increased exponentially the exposure to, to society, to the social norms, to social expectations, um, mainly or primarily through the social media lens. And we're starting to see a lot of the research coming out saying, yeah, there is, there's some link here. I don't think we've nailed it quite down exactly what that link is, but I can hypothesize that, you know, it's ex being exposed to these societal expectations and 
quote unquote trends or, um, you know, what's going viral is having an influence and an impact on the core values and the core beliefs that children and youth are growing and um, absorbing because these core values and the core beliefs are the foundation on which their thoughts, their feelings, their behaviors are layered on top of. And so if their core belief is that they have to be thin to be accepted, or they have to be, you know, uh, conventionally attractive to be loved or to be worthy, of course, that is going to, to kind of spiral out into their, their thoughts and their feelings and their behaviors. And it's, that's where we tend to get involved is when we see these, these behaviors that might be, you know, restriction, for example, not eating enough food as a way to then manage or control their weight, their shape, appearance in order to fit in. Right. And you've, you've talked about that elsewhere where you've said, um, I may get it wrong, that the eating disorder is actually something that the child values or that they, it, serves, it serves a purpose for them that they don't necessarily want to lose, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Like, why would something that's hurting you that much be something that you want to hang on to? Can you just, just like, and the reason I'm asking this, I think a lot, a lot of our listeners have kids and probably worry about their futures and their mental health. And that that's such a, an interesting nuanced idea that it might be useful to just unpack a little bit. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, I mean, when we talk about the value of an eating disorder, it oftentimes brings a sense of safety. It may keep them safe from their fears. If their fear is not being loved, accepted, or valued based on their shape, weight, and appearance. So again, it's built on a broken foundation but nonetheless, it's still valid in their brain. So the eating disorder is predictable. It's comforting. It bring it can bring them a sense of control and it absolutely prevent provides a sense of safety. So eating disorder behaviors such as restriction or purging or over-exercising, all of these behaviors act in a way that help them cope. It's maladaptive. It's not necessarily the most positive coping strategy, but it is a coping strategy very similar to smoking or doing drugs or drinking alcohol or gambling. These are all various coping mechanisms. They're all deemed maladaptive, but they still play a role nonetheless. So oftentimes pediatric or youth come to us and they actually don't see anything wrong with the way that they are eating. They don't see it as a concern because what they do see is that now they're more accepted by their peers. Now they may, you know, be fitting in. And unfortunately, it comes at the cost of their health and their well-being. But when you're a youth or you're a child, that acceptance is so very valuable. So you can see why they don't want to let go of that. Right. That must be a big thing to try to overcome at the beginning, just even to accept. It's hard 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 to solve a problem if you don't accept that you have one. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's probably the most nuanced part of the work because the parents can see that it's tricky or their loved ones can see that it's a problem. Um, but sometimes the individuals, the child doesn't see it. And I mean, it can be understandable because society is so heavily focused on weight, shape and body appearance. It makes sense. A lot of our parents, a lot of our loved ones, a lot of my colleagues are also influenced by, you know, what we call diet culture or societal expectations. Most of us have been influenced at some point in our lives. And so it can be overwhelming to think of how it is a societal issue. It's a big picture issue. It's not something that we just treat in a silo that is the individual living with the eating disorder. And it's become worse recently, hasn't it? Like what what are the growth numbers around this? 
Yeah. I mean, the research is just starting to come out post COVID, but the statistics that I've been looking at is suggesting about a 60% increase in eating disorders, um, especially around children and youth. And I mean, the public system, I think can validate that, right? We know that the wait times have grown exponentially. So what used to be maybe a few months wait time to access public system is closer to a year, even two years in some parts of Canada. So it's definitely impacting the public system significantly. And so is that, is that why it's needed? I mean, there there is a public system. Um, So how does, how does one make a choice between, well, I can go to the public system or go to you. Is it just wait time? Or I know you've also, you do some things a little bit differently. Yeah. Talk a little bit about both why people come to you from, from the public system, um, which is a good system as I understand it, but you know, it's, it's under strain. Um, And then what you do differently, like what's, what's unique about your model? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've got to remember that I did work for the public system for many years, right? And I worked right across Canada and various provinces. So I feel like I did get um, a good taste of what the public system offers. I loved my work there. I really enjoyed a lot of the the aspects of care within the public care or the, within the public health system. Um, but there are gaps, and with anything that's public health funded, we know that there's tends to be budgeting concerns, and there can be staffing concerns. So for myself, when I was working the public system, I started to notice some gaps. You know, wait time was a significant gap. When we know the research tells us time and time again, early detection, early treatment, and early change are absolutely paramount to eating disorder recovery. And statistically, we have 50-50 chance. So 50% of folks who are diagnosed with an eating disorder will actually fully recover. The other 50% tend not to recover. They tend to live with a chronic mental health issue. So when we know that early change, early detection, early treatment is key to that, I had a really hard time with the wait times becoming ever increasing. So for myself, I started to see pretty, pretty large gaps, um, large gaps with, you know, positions being vacant. Again, the wait time in terms of scheduling, geographic access, um, sometimes there's even admission criteria. So certain diagnoses can't access eating disorder care, depending on the Again, you know, depending on the sort of diagnosis, um, just as a way to limit the budget to make sure that it's not being over over taxed. Um, so eventually, I I started to become more and more concerned with the increasing gaps and said, okay, I can do this work on the outside and start to fill the gap, um, fill the gap in care with the public health care system, and ideally start to alleviate some of the stress on the public health care system which has been really cool because if we can offload some of the stress that's on the wait, on the wait list, if we can help some of these folks on the wait list actually achieve eating disorder recovery before they even get a call for eating disorder treatment, we're actually freeing up that space for somebody lower down on the wait list to access care. And that is something that I'm very happy with. It's something I'm proud of that we are actually not only increasing access to folks that can access private care because we know not everybody can, but by alleviating some of the stress on the wait system, the wait times and on the public health care system in a roundabout way, we're actually increasing access for the folks that can't access private health care as well. Right. Nice. Nice. Now, your model is a bit different, like this, the way you combine the psychotherapy and, and the dietetics. Can you talk a little bit about that, like what, how that works and why, how you came to that, I guess? Yeah, for sure. So again, with the public health care system, most often the provinces are mandated to provide a certain type of care. 
And while it might be best practice, what that means is that it applies to the majority of the population. It doesn't apply to every single individual within the population. So in private healthcare, we have a lot more autonomy. And what that means is that we can meet the client where they are. And perhaps family-based treatment is exactly what they need. And that's a great fit. So we can do that. Sometimes it's not though. Sometimes that they may be at that transitional age of youth. So 18 to 25, they might not be ready for the adult system modality or methodology in terms of eating disorder treatment. So we have a lot more flexibility to use the modalities that make sense for the individual. We can meet them where they are um, and we don't have limitations from, you know, from the public healthcare system that mandates us to a certain level or a certain number of sessions um, to different exclusion criteria. We just have a lot more autonomy, which I appreciate as a clinician. Um, the big piece with that is the flexibility to meet them where they are and then also include their family. So we can invite siblings in, we can invite parents in and the parents or the loved ones that are supporting the individual with the eating disorder we really want to make sure that they feel supported. And I think that's a major piece that's missing in a lot of other systems is that, of course, the parent is not technically the client, but they're the ones doing this work. They absolutely are shouldering a lot of burden. They may be experiencing overwhelm, anxiety, stress. You know, the research supports a very high incidence of depression and anxiety in parents of children with eating disorders. So that is something that we are very much supporting. We offer a lot of individualized services for the parents themselves. And we've built a really cool community in a group setting with parents that are also going through this. And they're able to talk about their experiences, talk about what's happening in their home lives. Um, they problem solve, hey, like this is what worked for with me and my child in the school. And they're, it's it's one of these environments where there's a hive mind. It's not just myself teaching all the parents are teaching each other. And it, there's so much value in that. And it's, it's really rewarding as a clinician to see that happening, to see that group of parents come together. And like they've said, it's the first time they've connected with other parents of children with eating disorders. And I think there's a lot of value in that. It must be such a relief just to be able to have somebody who understands. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I know from my work with you that you do some other things differently on the business side. So, mm -hmm. for instance, when we were working on your strategy, you involved your full team. And when we were working on defining your organizational values, again, you involved your full team, you know, rather than it just be I'm the owner and these are my values and that's what it's going to be. So why, why was that important to you and how do you see that inclusion as actually helping the business go forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think this work is nothing that I could never do this work on my own. And I put so much value and appreciation into our team. It's, I really try and reduce the power dynamics within the business structure and ensure that all the employees feel heard, they feel validated, they feel valued. Um, and even just referring them to, uh, to them as employees, I know that I am one of the first healthcare professionals within the world of nutrition and dietetics and therapy that has hired a team of employees instead of subcontracting. And that was really important to me. I wanted to be able to offer paid training opportunities, paid sick time, paid vacation time, um, you know, WSIB coverage or, or workplace injury coverage, because we could have vicarious trauma. You know, we are at high risk of post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental health concerns as mental health clinicians. So I wanted to make sure we had some resources in place for our team that way. 
Um, and it is unique. It is unique right now. I hope that we are the trailblazers and that colleagues follow in our pathway that way. Um, but it is really crucial to me that we have a sustainable practice and that we can continue helping these families. And unfortunately, mental health work in the big picture, but especially eating disorder care, it's a very high rate of clinician burnout, high turnover rates in these roles. Um, and that was something that I wanted to work really hard to reduce here. So I want to make sure that our, our employees are well taken care of, very strong focus on work-life balance, as you know. So that is something that came out front and center for us. How can we make sure that our clinicians are here and they're well to take care of our clients? Because they have to be well before they can take care of others. And so when you use that, that term work-life balance, it gets batted around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it leads to confusion sometimes, actually, because sometimes people think, well, balance means it's sort of an equal allocation and that. But when you just describe about making sure people, it's about being well, mm-hmm. right? And also being fulfilled. You know, like you can, you can spend more time at work and still be well, mm-hmm. um, as long as it's aligned with your goals and you're enjoying what you're doing and you're in flow and that kind of thing. So like, how do you, what, what, you know, mechanistically or structurally do you do that ensures that that balance or wellness is preserved? Like it's more Absolutely. than, like, it's not just talk. I want you to have balance. Like there's some structural things you've done. There are. Yes, there are. I mean, we have a maximum uh, number of clients that each clinician can hold and it is, it's low compared to a lot of my colleagues, but we do that so that folks have downtime. They have time where they can fill their own cups that they don't necessarily feel a ton of pressure to jump around to client, to client, to client. Um, So we do put maximums on the number of clients per day, the number of clients per week, um, we have mandated, you know, break times where they have to take at least an hour a day that they can only see a small number of clients back to back before taking a break. Just little things that, to be honest, I've learned from over time as a clinician that these are things that have helped me and that I think could help others. And then, of course, they also have autonomy. If they say, Jill, what works for you doesn't necessarily work for me they have the autonomy to then shift up their schedule. Maybe they want to do a few back-to-back and then have a whole day, you know, away from clients on a Wednesday or on a Friday. So that is something that they do have the autonomy to do. Um, We just ask that they reflect on it and that they really have a high sense of self-awareness with the ultimate goal of being here and whole to be able to provide, you know, elite eating disorder care to to their clients. So it sounds like you have to put a fair amount of trust in them. A lot of trust. Yeah. And that's probably the easy part. These clinicians are really, really cool people. And I think um, right from, you know, the hiring process, we ask for folks of non-dominant systemic identities to apply, to raise their hands um, and say, hey, yes, I may identify as a non-dominant identity and I want to come work for you folks. I want to work with you folks. And we do hire a little bit differently. We don't have a strong focus on, uh, you know, quote unquote experience, because I feel like experience can be a form of privilege. You know, privileged folks tend to get experiences and it can also be oppressive to only hire people with a ton of experience. I feel like eating disorder care is something that can be taught. I don't think that compassion and self-awareness can be taught. I think that those like empathy is a huge one. I don't think I can teach that. I think you need to come with empathy. You need to come with self-compassion. You need to have those inherent values. The, the actual care, the eating disorder care, that piece is teachable in my opinion. 
Um, so we very much look for the, the core, the core values, the core, um, traits underneath the experience. We're looking for the compassion and the empathy and the dedication more than anything in the hiring process. So the trust piece with our team at this point, that's the easy part because we've got some really, really cool people on board. Nice. Now some, uh, you know, business consultant like me could be listening to this and going, what? You're not maximizing billable hours per day by a client. You're, you're, you're undermining your profit opportunities for the business. What, what would you say to someone who has that argument? Yeah, totally fair. If, if the focus is on finances, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. Um, but that's not our focus. Our focus is on impact and wellness. And we want to increase our impact so that we can help as many people as we can. And the best way we can do that is keeping our team well and keeping our team here and keeping our team happy and fulfilled. And so if we have less turnover, then I think we can help more people. And I think we can have a stronger impact that way. And that's just kind of the way we did it. We're, we're not looking to, you know, the, the financial piece is very low on our priority list. You know, we all, of course, want to make livings. I'm so proud of the fact that I've been able to create full-time positions and full-time careers for our team. But at the end of the day, we're not necessarily looking for a larger profit margin. We're making sure that we can help more people and that we can employ more folks that, that want that work-life balance, that are looking for that fulfilling career. The, the interesting thing, though, is you and I have talked about this a little bit, too, is it's almost like the high margin, low volume, low volume, high margin dichotomy. In your case, because you're wanting to increase impact, your margin per unit, per employee unit may be lower, but because you're attracting really good people and attracting really great customers, you may have a higher volume piece, which will then make the financial outcomes incredibly attractive. Yeah. I mean, we're still here. We're still doing it, right? You haven't right. told me to, to change. So yeah. <laughs> it's got to be working somehow. Right. And you've been growing quickly as a result, right? We have. Yeah. Very quickly. So again, someone, you know, more traditional listening may think, oh, you know, this stuff about work-life balance and all, you know, it's all soft, mushy and nice and all, but you know, she's in a helping wellness space. Nice for her. Um, but just because I know, you know, the insides of this a little bit. I'd like to zero in on two of your values that you came up with the team, because I think it puts a different spin on it. There's like advocacy and authenticity. And as I understand it in your business, the way they apply are actually pretty badass. Like it's not just about being nicey-nicey. So as we're talking about work-life balance and all of this, you actually have a pretty, I, maybe this will be a miscarriage, like kind of hard-nosed approach to these things. Um, I would say direct. Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? For instance, you know, advocacy is built, you know, with your wraparound care and uh, authenticity is like telling people the truth and not coddling them. Like just talk a little bit about that and how it actually makes the business better. Yeah, for sure. I think for myself, I am a pretty direct individual. I always have been, um, which I feel like has made me good at this work because when we know that time is of the essence, I don't think there is time to really sugarcoat some of these outcomes and sugarcoat the recommendations and the treatment plans. So we are pretty direct. We, you know, we call it like it is. We will be very truthful and very transparent about expectations um, in terms of treatment plans and, and what we absolutely need to do in order to achieve the goal that the clients are looking for. Most times it is eating disorder recovery. But that advocacy piece 
it's sometimes advocating in a way that they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that they need more help or that they need to be transferred to the hospital because that's hard. That's hard to hear. And it can be very scary because it means that they might have to let go of their really effective coping strategy right now. But we are major, major advocates of making sure that everybody gets the help that they need. And even if it's not us, and a lot of times it isn't us, we are in the outpatient setting and we have higher levels of care above us. There's something called day treatment. There's residential, there's inpatient. And a lot of folks will come to us looking for that higher level of care or not. Sorry. They'll look for us. And we say, you need more than us. You need something that's going to provide you 24 seven support. And, and we cannot do that in the outpatient setting. So instead of leaving it there and, and saying, you know, see you later, good luck in your search. We help them find that care. We help them get connected to the care that they need. And it's not us. And that's okay. Because for me, ethically, I need to make sure that they are getting connected to the higher level of care or they're getting connected where they need. It's not just about us being the care providers. So advocacy piece is huge for us. Um, And again, with the early detection, you know, if we're not advocating for increased eating disorder education, then the doctors aren't going to know how to detect these things. Teachers aren't going to know how to detect. Um, School counselors won't know how to detect eating disorders. So the advocacy piece also goes to the the global education of these folks that could be detecting eating disorders, because if they can, it very much increases the chance of eating disorder recovery because it hits that piece of early treatment, early detection, early change. We want to advocate for at a systemic level for higher education, higher awareness. A lot of that um, advocacy work takes place outside of the business. It does not necessarily add to our income or it's not revenue generating, but yet it's still crucial to us as a team. Although interestingly, like, you know, the more doctors hear about you, the more they're likely to refer you patients when they know what you're able to do. Absolutely. That's not why you do it, but that's part of one of, one of my theses behind this whole podcast is when you do things for the right reasons, do the right things and do the right things for the right reasons, you wind up attracting the right kind of people. A hundred percent. So what's next? What's next for change creates change. Like what's the, what's the kind mm. of Uber goal? The Uber goal. Uh, it's hard to say. Are we talking like two years? Or are we talking 10 years? I'll start with two and then say 10. Yeah, two years. Right now, we're really getting our Ontario team solid um, and really nurturing the Ontario population. Uh, in the next year or two, we're hoping to expand coast to coast. So opening opening up some provincial offices in you know British Columbia, in Nova Scotia, in Alberta. Um, that's in the next you know one to two years. Big, big picture, 10 years down the road, I'd love to have a treatment center um, that we're, where we can provide the higher levels of care. So where we could provide day treatment, where we could provide residential um, for children and youth in Canada. A lot of what's happening right now, there's nothing really in Canada that does that. Um, and in the States, of course, it's harder to access because of the public versus pri- private healthcare model. But 10 years down the road, I'd like to have a center that we can offer higher levels of care. That's fantastic. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see it actually take place. Um, and this is, you know, I, I guess we can leave it there. That's, that's a pretty good aspiration for where you're going. Um, I love the, 
the fact that I mean, I, why I wanted to have this conversation with you is I think I think it's a really good example for a lot of the listeners. Like some of the, some of the listeners are relatively new in their business as well, and when they're hearing some of the other people who've been at it for a long time, that okay, well, you know, that's easy for somebody who's been at it for a long time. But to see that it can be baked in right from the beginning, and that you've got such a passionate vision for the let me back up. So what a lot of people do, even in my business, is they talk about the business model and how you're going to make money first. Mm-hmm. And I've been having lots of these kind of conversations with people where it's about when you when you start with the impact you want to have. I've, in fact, changed my strategy model a little bit in the goal setting to actually start with what the impact is you want to have. Mm-hmm. And when you when you start there, then the details of the business model get fleshed out in light of that. And that creates, in your case, what I've heard and seen is some really innovative thinking and innovative modeling and innovative management practices that are all driven by that foundational impact you want to have. Does that Absolutely. sound fair? 100%. 100%. And I think the big piece is the sustainability. I think I could have done the business on a subcontractor model but I'd have high turnover. Of course I would, you know, that's the nature of contract work. And that's not what I was looking for. I wanted our clients to have a predictable team. I wanted them to be able to build the therapeutic relationships. Um, And I wanted our team to also have that cohesion that they had each other to lean on because we do lean on, on each other a lot. We, we lean on each other for support, for debriefing, for case consultation, for mentorship, and that's not something you can get with subcontractors. So I've I've really prioritized the team piece over the revenue generation right now. Not to say that we're not revenue positive. Of course we are, because otherwise, how would we pay the salaries? Yeah. Um, but I do think that having this foundation based on the purpose, the vision, the missions, the values, just the overall culture will really help us grow larger and stronger as we start to expand into different offices in different provinces, even to different levels of care, because it's all going to be based on that foundational culture. Mm-hmm. And if this, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. No, I just feel like if the staff, if they're well, then they can help the clients be well. Right. But the other piece of it, because so- sometimes these conversations with when, when people talk about impact and values, it can feel very much that it's just about that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you've also engaged with strategy and strategic planning yeah. and business modeling, and you know, you do look at your margins and your financial management and all of those things that they they have to go together. And the fact that you're doing both of those right at the right at the outset is why I, I'm excited about your future because you're positioning everything at the foundations really well and really strongly. And it's you know, so just to almost cascade down, it's it's impact. And then it's values and it's, but it's also, there's an identify, there's an identifiable need or problem that needs to be solved and impact that you want to have within that problem, a business model that can serve that problem and values and culture that are going to attract the right people, the best people Mm -hmm. that are going to help the business position to solve that problem. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. that's, That's a great model for others. So if people do have questions about maybe I have a loved one, a young loved one in my family who I think may be struggling with this. How can people reach out to you or find you? Or are there other resources that you'd recommend they access first? 
Yeah, of course. Our website is probably the biggest hub of information. So it's changecreateschange.com. Um, I'm sure Warren will link it to link it in the description. But there is a lot of free resources there in terms of videos. There's blogs, there's articles, um, but you can also just book a call with myself. So everybody can have a free 15 minute consultation call. If you're just trying to figure out what it is that's on your plate right now, um, I book those calls every single week. So you can always book in with me and we can chat about your individual case and see what we, what we need to do next. And is there anything you'd like to like give people a heads up about, like even just what you said earlier, that 50% succeed, like that the importance of timing, that if people do have a suspicion or a concern that a loved one is experiencing this, that, you know, they don't wait. Absolutely. I think time is of the essence is the big piece. And to recognize that, you know, statistically, we're looking about a one in 10. So one in 10 individuals will be impacted or will live with an eating disorder throughout their lives. So we're talking, you know, 10% of the population, most likely you do know somebody who has an eating disorder. Um, Unfortunately, diet culture, society as a whole has really downplayed the the impact of, you know, weight bias and weight stigma and dieting because the dieting industry makes billions and billions of dollars and it very much normalizes eating disorder behaviors. Um, but if you're seeing things like over-exercising or skipping meals or restriction food rules, you know, becoming socially isolated in order to avoid eating, these are pretty big red flags. So that is something that we'd want you to reach out. Um, And we always put off a free webinar as well each and every month, one for parents, one for our healthcare professionals, just around increasing the detection. So all the need to know red flags, uh, you can access right away from the website. All right. And the website again is changecreateschange.com. You got it. Thanks very much, Jillian. This has been great. I hope people have enjoyed it. And both for parents who are, you know, concerned about a loved one and for business owners who want to have the same kind of passionate success, not just financial success. Uh, I think you've provided a ton of value for, for both those audiences. So thanks very much for being in the spotlight. Beautiful. Thank you, Warren. Cheers. Hi, it's Warren Coughlin here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business That Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoglin.com slash podcast slash apply. That's warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N.com slash podcast slash apply. If you got something out of this interview, would you do us a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag business that matters spotlight. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, warrencoglin.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, facebook.com slash a business that matters, and Instagram at warren.coglin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.